This is Ariel Halevi with my podcast, The Greater Context. And in today's episode, I'll be hosting Mr. Gul Baslavi, my co-founder at Viomar and closest friend over the past 20 years. Gur and I will be discussing the topic of innovation, specifically in large, well-established corporations. And we'll be looking at how to cultivate a culture that generates continuous, systematic innovation, specifically in context of the many, many forces that currently exist in well-established corporations and that actually work directly against the fostering of systematic innovation. Hello again, my fellow cave people, struggling in the midst of the digital revolution. It's time for another episode of The Greater Context with Ariel Halevi. Okay, so I hope you're ready for a really interesting session that we have today because I have a very, very special guest with me who, among many, many things, is actually my closest friend in the world. Uh, Gul, how do we know each other? Well... You invited me for lunch, I think, and the first day you came to campus, I went through the classes and I presented the debating association, the club, and before I was finished, you leaned down beneath the table and recorded an invitation to the cell number I wrote on the whiteboard behind me, and you invited me for a business lunch in the cafeteria. Yes, yeah, so this is back in 2001, I think. October yeah. 2001, I had just started my studies at the IDC. <laughs> Gore was this young 14-year-old looking guy who had st- started the, was one of the people who started the um, debate club at the Interdisciplinary Center. And the rest is history. We've now been business partners for how long? Since 2003. Yeah. We okay. started even before that, I think. Well, we were debate Sorry. partners for two yeah. years before that. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so you, go, you can all imagine... Um, a lot of the topics that I said I would talk about during this series of podcasts in my opening session, um, a lot of them have evolved over the years with the very, very close partnership of Ghoul. And today, I asked him to come here because I wanted to talk about something very, very specific that I know is very close to his heart and should be close to the hearts of pretty much everybody today because it's a topic that's on fire and it's a topic that has a ton to do with the future of your workplace or the organization that you're responsible for. And by the way, not necessarily a corporate for-profit organization, but really any organization that wants to be sustainable and long-lasting. We're going to talk about innovation. Um, and we're not going to talk about innovation as far as, well, how do you do a good uh, uh, event? Or how do you run a good uh, uh, hackathon? Right. We're going to talk about something very, very specific, which is the idea of creating uh, an organizational innovation program. Yeah. How is, how is that different from anything is, else? Because what it tries to achieve is systematic innovation. One of the main things that people fail to understand is that you don't just wake up in the morning with a brilliant idea and you just implement it. It's an iterative process. It might take a long time. There's a lot of failure. And you need to create an infrastructure that would nurture and nourish this process over time in order to achieve eventually something like innovation. What for? Just... You have innovation, right? You have R&D for years now, right? You've had R&D organizations within companies. They do it. They they do the next release of the product. They do market research to see what the next features of the product need to be. What's the difference between that and an organizational innovation program? Well, there's several differences. The first thing is that you're right. R&D programs, labs, and various companies perform innovation and produce it. The more organizational innovation side of things is asking a different question. How can we harness most of our employees, not necessarily from R&D, not necessarily engineers or cord writers, and allow them to engage with the basic challenges of the company and bring in new infusion of ideas, different perspectives, and create what some might say is the essence of innovation, which is integration. Because if you break any type of innovation into its components, you would see that it's a series of integration between different ideas that create a new functionality. And this is what we would like to create in an organization in order to make it smarter, more adaptable, and to say something which is fundamental to any innovation process, which is you don't know everything and you don't know where the right answer is going to come from. So let's clarify for a minute. Yeah. Most people will attribute the concept of innovation to technology. But right. when you're thinking about creating an innovation program for your organization, you're not limited to technology. You're not even limited to the technology that company is currently bringing to market. Absolutely. It could be in anything. And this is fundamental because limiting innovation to technology is 
thinking within the box and capturing and snaring us into yesterday. Innovation could have been done in the way that we perform mathematics. Innovation was moving from the Latin figures into the Arabic or better stated Indian figures that we use today in arithmetic, etc. The figures, the uh, numerals that we use today. Innovation is everywhere. And uh, by the way, we couldn't perform most of our technological advancements today if we didn't have composite materials, for instance. This is unbelievable relating to chemistry, biology, physics, etc. Innovation is everywhere and it could happen in plumbing just as well as it can happen in computing. So this is how I see it. I, tell me if you see it uh, differently. And you're completely welcome to see things differently than me. I tell my audience always that they're welcome to be wrong as many times as they want. <laughs> But this is like the evolution of innovation that I see as far as organizations, right? And this is oversimplified, obviously. But it starts with a period where you don't have a business until you innovate, right? You have to create a product. Let's create a product. We'll work on it for a year, for five years, and we'll bring it to market and we'll live off of that business, right? Then companies realize, well, I can create more products and they start doing their own internal R&D, but it's innovation that's limited to a certain department and it's limited to whatever they're bringing to market. Then organizations start thinking, you know what? Let's involve other people in the ideation process and they start celebrating an innovation with ad hoc events, innovation days, you know, uh, hackathons. And now we're living in a situation where innovation has to be continuous, meaning there's no start and there's no end to the cycle or to the process of innovation, meaning you want everybody in the organization or maybe even anybody in the ecosystem of the company to be allocating a certain percent of their time and their energy and their mind to thinking about how to make things in a company better towards supporting the company's vision. Do you agree with that? Not necessarily. Actually, I differ from you on various uh, levels. First of all, with your core assumption, I think that most organizations, most companies are not innovative. When you build a business, even in day one, you could be a business and sometimes we can see Chinese companies very good at it. I'm seeing how you're creating a product. I'll mimic you and I'll do the same, maybe for a cheaper cost. Maybe I'll do it in my cellar, my garage. But it doesn't mean that I brought innovation into the process. I think that most people are using innovation to loosely. Innovation, even from its Latin form, if you want to be very scientific, is change. And we're all changing all the time. Even the cells in our body change every three months, every seven, seven and a half years. You don't have a single cell in your body that was there seven and a half years ago. So you change dramatically, but it's not enough. What we are calling innovation is creating a change that sustains certain goals at a certain speed and reaches certain outcomes that are compatible with the needs of that organization, its expectations, et cetera. How do we define it? It's a big discussion. But bringing in, or let's say whitewashing your walls, just like we whitewash our innovation aspiration is not always What enough. do you mean by whitewashing? I don't get it. Because people are saying, yes, we're innovating and we have a program. We're just like some of the examples you threw. We had an innovation day or we created a hackathon. That does not constitute as innovation. And maybe it's important to actually define what innovation is. In my well, mind, I, well, I want you to define innovation and then I want you again to define an innovation program. Yeah, okay. What, to me, it's very, very slippery. And you and I, we deal with this day in, day out over the last 10 years. I don't know how many innovation programs we've been involved with with our customers. And still, I find that I have to sit down and concentrate and identify the difference. So I want, I want you to define innovation and then I want you to define what distinguishes an innovation program from other forms of innovation activities. Okay, so I would say that an innovation, organizational innovational program would be an extracurricular program that doesn't run along the same path of creating new products, R&D, thinking and working that already exist. Otherwise, do it in the same way. Innovation tries to break the mold, the, our barriers of thinking and our paradigms and bringing in, infusing new ideas. So what we do is that we create parallel processes that would enable more participants as we can to engage with innovation. And first of all, by understanding, what are we expecting to achieve? Isn't that a hackathon? We bring in everybody, we do a two-day hackathon, we hear their ideas, we build something, Yeah, so this is why I think that it's so important to define and re-engage with the definition of innovation. And okay. I think that here most people make a tremendous fundamental mistake. People think that creativity is innovation and it is not. Innovation is the creation of novel ideas that would answer valuable challenges 
and would get implemented. So it's the implementation of novel solutions for valuable challenges. And that means for me that the greatest emphasis is on the word implementation. Novel ideas is a means to an end. Understanding what are the valuable challenges is a must-have in order to create valuable innovation and not just something new. How, how am I supposed to know what's valuable for my company? Ah, okay. So here there is a very important, I think that probably the most important process of innovation, and that is choosing what type of innovation structure and infrastructure is right for your organization. For instance, let's start with a basic question. What do you need the innovation for? I'm meeting more organizations today that are saying, we want to do an innovation day or a lecture. We would like to put a poster or whatever. That's not innovation. That is a nice lecture. This is opening your minds and expanding the horizons, which is always nice and it's good. You could do it on parenting, innovation or money lending. But in order to make innovation successful, you will need to answer what type of innovation do you wish to achieve at the end? What is the end goal? A lot like the value orientation and the basic question that you're offering your clients in so many of your lectures, and I completely agree with it. What is, are the desirable outcomes that you want to achieve? And there are a variety of good outcomes, but you have to decide. So, so let me jump in here for a minute because I'm conflicted, but I think, I think I understand what you're saying. If we... If we If we took our employees to a two-day, whatever, innovation workshop or off-site once every quarter, and we just did hackathons and we let them brainstorm things of improving, I think in Netflix they called it the paper cut approach. Just find a lot of little things that you can improve in the organization. We'll get them done in, in three months, and then we'll do another one and another one. That would create value for the organization, right? But I think what you're saying is we're looking at value that would create the necessary return on investment. That would justify management's allocating of perpetual resources towards this project because it's actually moving the needle for the organization. It's giving it a competitive advantage. It's maintaining its presence in the market. It's not just adding value through marginal improvements in the, in the profit margins of the company. It's actually positioning the company to stay a winner over time in a changing environment. Do you accept that difference? Well, I think it, it could be applied, but it's not necessarily the definition. And I don't think it would apply for most companies, by the way. I think... Again, according to our misconceptions of innovation, when we're looking at giants like Amazon and, and Facebook and all those huge companies that do the cutting-edge innovation, this is one thing. But the real-world innovation that affects tens of thousands of companies and businesses could be much smaller. It doesn't need to be the leader of the market necessarily. Give me an example. You, you've done so many of these programs for companies. Give me an example of something that came out of these programs that you would say it worked. For instance, when we are taking one of the core businesses, I'll give you a very, uh, I cannot name the company, Obviously. but let's say they did um, a very big project that was multi-million dollars in encryption. And after we ran through it several times in a very nice process, I can go into details, uh, we found out that one of the three steps of the encryption was not needed. <laughs> that was added, but it wasn't sequentially needed logically. And we're talking about top-of-the-line engineers with PhDs and dozens of hours, years of uh, training for each one. And the innovation process that came from the people themselves that just ask very rudimentary, simple questions. I don't get it. I don't get it. So just what, removing that encrypting stage was the innovation? For instance... And that is, again, and there are various kinds of innovations. Isn't that optimization? Or are we going to get lost? In, okay, wait. Yeah. The, the disclaimer. Okay. Disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> again, we know each other for, what, 20 years? At least. I don't know how many, don't know how many hours. Exactly. I think we may have lost four of those years to trying to figure out the difference and nuance in semantics. So if, we, if you and I are going to be responsible to our listeners to stop if we fall down that trap. But... That to me is an improvement. It's an optimization. We removed a step in a process. We made the process more efficient. Why is it innovative? What's okay. novel about it? Okay, so here we are coming to something which is much greater in the innovation field. And I, it's, it goes down to all kinds of techniques and approaches of innovation from Six Sigma to Kaizen and other systems that or Toyota Lean, which I won't go into explaining which one, uh, what each one represents. But essentially, they're taking an approach of let's improve prove the situation let's eliminate waste for instance okay at the end of the day if you apply the definition of innovation of implementation of valuable solutions to valuable challenges 
it adheres. If I can take your process and cut down from it 14% by small little paper cuts, like you mentioned previously, okay. that's innovative. And again, I would agree with you with something else. When do we draw the line between endless continuous improvement on the existing platform and when do we break free from the frame of thought that we are currently existing in? And again, I think it's so um, it's so overly used the example of faster horses and creating uh, right, a new car by, uh, by Henry Ford. I don't want to go into it. But what he did was far more important than that. We're thinking about the car and making a faster car. That was not the innovation Henry Ford created. He created the the uh, the chains and the way that you the build, workflow the workflow the the how to reduce and optimize the construction of a car. It was brilliant. Would you say more. that part of his innovation was paying his employees dramatically more than market value? Well, in a sense, I don't know think that that was innovative. I think that he hated unions and he broke their legs with the mafia, by the way. And he paid five dollars because it was much more expensive to train skilled workers time and time again. He had the same problem with two of his peers. Dodge uh, brothers that broke off from him and uh, created a competitor. But the important thing is that you can see from, I think it was 1915, etc., until 1915, he managed to take the T-model and reduce its actual cost for the customers by a third while increasing its profits in megafolds. That is an amazing innovation in the process. So why don't we do this? I mean, you and I have come across this, these two ideas today. constantly right that there's there are types of innovation so yeah. you have incremental innovation and you have step change innovation mm-hmm. um, I read uh, Kasparov's book about uh, um, about AI where he basically argues that innovation well I'm I'm adding what he argues into our conversation about innovation programs and again tell me if you agree or disagree but I think what he's basically he said um, continuing down a path of con- continuous incremental innovation will ultimately fail and It, it, because it will never allow for a step change because you're constantly working incrementally. Would you agree that the purpose of an innovation program for a company is to achieve step change? Or would you say that a, prog- a company can be tremendously successful with innovation even if it just puts together a very good sustainable program for incremental innovation as long as it does a good job getting everybody involved, harvesting the ideas, selecting the right ones, and actually implementing them? Yeah, well, again, I think that here it's vital to understand that not every organization or business is capable of step change. If you want, we'll go into statistics as well, because it's a very risky business. And many, many models are demonstrating that if you can come up with a 1% improvement every month on what you're doing that's after that's, five that's, years, yes, it's tremendous, massive, right. and especially if it's compounded. So... It's not necessarily bad or good. Look at the Chinese industry of cutting, reducing cost, etc. The Toyota lean again, eliminating waste, uh, etc. It can prove itself tremendously. I would say something different. And it's, again, it's very easy to resort to technology. For instance, we could have continued working with transistors and, or the vacuum uh, tubes and not move into transistors, but the vacuum cu- uh, tubes had a limitation. If we were still... bounded by it, we wouldn't see most of the technological changes that we're seeing today. And the silicon chip does have much, many more years ahead of it before it will reach its limit, but we're already discussing nanotubes. And it's going to open a new horizon. Is that computing. step change? That is step change. It's so, tremendous. So, so effectively, but, we're going to have to, look, somebody is going to achieve step change and they're going to leave everybody behind. No, but here there is a big difference because in most of the times, It doesn't necessarily mean that if you were the first person or organization to develop a change, you would be the one to benefit from it. Most companies could be very smart by just leaning back, smart waiting, smart followers, not being the first in the market, but utilizing it in a much more clever way. There's a lot of cost to developing cutting-edge technology, and it doesn't always work. And you can see some of the greatest megagiants. I think it doesn't megagiants. always work is actually an understatement. It doesn't work yeah. most of the time. Yes, actually, yeah. Uh, innovation, it depends how you define it and how you aggregate it, but I would... Yeah. No, no. Okay, so uh, go ahead. Let's say it's uh, more often than not that innovation would fail, failing into achieving the KPIs you set for it. Because why would internal innovation within a company operate with different statistics than regular innovation? That, I mean, venture capital firms have a vast failure rate, right? If they get one home run out of 11 companies that they invest in, that's considered actually pretty good. And that's, a, that's like a 90% failure rate. So, but they're designed. See, the thing is, 
innovation that happens outside of corporations, you know, the, what we know, the dot-coms and all that stuff, they have industries like venture capital funds that are designed to put their money at risk. Their business is to put their money at risk. When we're talking about programs within corporations, those corporations have to maintain profit margins on a quarterly basis. If they're public, they have to, they have to meet profit targets. If they're not public, they have a runway. So, and, and they exist because already somebody invested in them and they have a main business. So now they should trickle it down and take risk again and sacrifice important resources that they have that are part of a roadmap to try to gamble on new innovative ideas that's tremendously dangerous for the company it is but let's remember that the bigger the company the more expertise it has the deeper the pockets it can afford building domain expertise leveraging a lot of the technological innovations companies such as IBM for instance gathered billions of dollars over the years from tens of thousands of patents they registered in various fields sometimes they didn't even know how they're going to use yeah, but how many IBM most of us are not IBM that's true on the other and, hand and we could be government offices let's let's I, I the police wants to innovate a municipality wants to innovate right I mean when we talk about innovation programs we're not just talking about rich fortune 500 companies and we'll talk about that in a few minutes why they actually are the least likely to succeed at least based on theories such as the one presented in the innovators dilemma but but what if I'm not it, an IBM no yeah but let's make a, again the distinction you mentioned before that you If you won't be the first to market or if you're investing so much money in creating something new but most organization that would end up innovating let's say like if the police force they're not necessarily the first ones to try out those techniques that equipment etc they could buy it ready-made more than that most companies buy through MA the innovative breakthroughs that they would use later on would you call that an innovation program it's not an innovation program but that's it's my producing point. innovation internally I understand but that's fair but see you're absolutely right that there are many paths mm-hmm. of bringing innovation into the company so let me be more specific because I think what I'd like to offer people today is this understanding of and, and, and I want to do it because you and I have been there and we've seen it succeed and we've seen it fail and we've been part of both categories with quite a few companies companies that want to adopt innovation through an innovation program how do you know if you're if, how do you let's put it this way how do I know if I should build an internal program intrapreneurship program or an internal innovation program or maybe I should just do MA well I would say uh, that scoping is vital uh, even MA let's remember has a great <laughs> dis yeah, yeah. massive failure rate we're talking about 66 to 86 failure rate to reaching the KPIs that you defined for the MA and some of it could be as benile as uh, the attention that the top management allocates for the purchased company after it's being bought 90 of their intentions uh, attention to that company would be dedicated pro go, no, go, right yeah go no go we cr- included the uh, purchase and only 10 of their Their attention would be given in the post-merger integration period of 18 months which is so vital so that fails in alarming rates as well so you're going to throw 50 a hundred of whatever is your billion currency. yeah whatever it could be millions could be hundreds of thousands it depends how big you are but let's say it's a substantial amount of money because you're buying something already made somebody developed it so you're paying a premium the internal innovation programs what's unique about that is that you are already you going through and you leveraging existing resources that are now dormant in your organization people know a specific field they understand the industry the product uh, the selling of it but they usually get clustered they get isolated and they speak with their own kinds and they have limited interfaces and they're never being presented even with an option or question This of the... offer us something new what would you do differently what are you learning from other places and this is just a very rudimentary example but If I could have all my field people inform me on developments on the customer side for instance maybe I could learn and adapt faster maybe I would understand what they need better let me give you an example and it's again it's it's something that would end up big but it started so small and humble two three months ago in um, uh, we're in 2019 now I'm saying it for posterity but <laughs> so two three months ago uh, I think it was uh, July or August Mort Mandel died and He was a unique individual that back in 1940 opened up bought a tiny company failing company for auto parts in the United States from his uncle with his three brothers he could master 900 between the three of them and that was the purchasing price they 
fought every day to create margins. They found out that they're selling the same parts hundreds of people sold. So the only way of making a sale was, you know, knocking off another cent or two. They couldn't even pay rent sometimes. And then they figured out something very basic. Let's see what our customers actually want. They came, started interviewing, and again, it's 50, 70 years ago, so it's a, it's a bygone age, 80 years ago. And they found out very quickly that people are willing to pay anything for parts that are no longer in production or rare, because you do have those cars on the road, but nobody has those parts. They figured it out and started buying en masse um, all the equipments of entire car lines that was due to come off production and would be stopped. But those cars might still be on the road for decades later on. The amassed a fortune that is estimated around $1.5 billion amongst those three in an industry where you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of businesses, companies, employees working in the same way. So identifying that niche, that crack, could be done in a tiny auto part business with three employees, we can do it today with our dozens or hundreds of employees that would feed us some of those insights. So this reminds me of a story, I think, because I want to bring this, again, they were the founders, right? They were yeah. the entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. I think what I'm curious about is how do we bring it into the organization so that every single employee can be part of that process? Because when I think about an innovation program and we talk to our customers about it, I'm talking about an idea that would encompass as many employees as possible. Um, on a daily basis, right? How do we harvest that brain power and their daily exposure to the specific angle of reality that they get to see? And how do we bring that all together so that we can identify trends or needs or unmet problems? Um, so I don't know if this is a real story or not. It's one of those stories that's been going around for years about Boeing manufacturing. where The, the wing. The wing, right? Yeah. So, so there's a tour in the Boeing manufacturing facility and there's this, I don't know, 50-year-old guy that's climbing up a ladder with a 30-pound drill up the ladder, drills a bolt into the wing, climbs down the ladder, moves the ladder, climbs up again. I think they were manufacturing or putting together a wing every month. And one of the guests decided to ask that guy, if you could do one thing different here, what would you do? And he said, I'd put a spring on the ceiling and I'd hang this drill that weighs 30 pounds that I have to lift and lower every time. And I could move up and down much faster and I could do more a day because I wouldn't get tired. I think they multiplied the, product, the speed of wing production by like 400%. That's innovation, right? For instance, now, yeah. the problem I think we find in a lot of organizations is A, nobody's asking this guy what he thinks needs to be done. And number two, even if this guy is screaming at the top of his lungs, I have an idea, there's nobody there to capture the idea and see it through. Because, no, right? because nobody really has, management is busy, Nobody really wants things to change. We build standard operating procedures. They've worked so far. Why do we have to move, shake the boat? Um, how do we deal with that situation? Well, first of all, we need to understand that there is an inherent conflict that relates to innovation. It's the, it's the struggle between the here and now gains that I can make more profit, make different things, maybe increase my bonus, or to take some of these resources and put it towards something that might materialize somewhere in the future. And this is a very big decision because most of our compensation as managers and organizations relates to the end of the year, the fiscal year. Nobody's going to give me bonus for an innovation that is going to materialize three years after I finish my role. What do you recommend then? How do we mitigate that challenge? You're now you're now speaking to CEOs in the mm -hmm. world. What do you suggest to them? First of all, I would say that innovation in a word is sacrifice. And if you're not willing to sacrifice, you are not ready for innovation. And if that innovation and your goals are very limited, they're very humble and the sacrifice is small, great, okay, maybe you can sustain it. But for more often than not, once the innovation comes to more critical points where urgent matters are landing on the CEO's table or the manager, and then the easiest thing is to sacrifice soft plans, things that don't have an ROI in a here and now, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, innovation. Anything that's not essential for making the next quarter target. Exactly. Why? Because it's so urgent, because we cannot afford it. But this is one of the most critical mistakes. And here I would tie it back to one of your pivotal questions, and you're right. It is true that you can create a lot of value with incremental changes, month after month, etc. But by and large, it would guide you and funnel you to stay at the same method of work, just doing it more efficiently and better and better. And if we would stay with steam power, and that would be the first industrial revolution, and we would have the same type of engines today, we wouldn't be flying in the air, okay? So we wouldn't have cell phones, etc. We wouldn't have uh, large turbines uh, and other great innovations that propel our technology. 
And I would say, alongside with you, that I would look at the organizational innovation programs as a means of maybe broadening our horizons, bringing in new ideas, breaking, shattering the molds that limit our thinking. And every person that I meet, if you'll ask most people, are you innovative? Are you creative? Most people would say that they are. And it can be that 70, 80 percent, this is a classic Don Kahneman and Amos Tversky's uh, findings, that it can be that 75, 85 percent of people are better than the average. So somebody is deluding themselves. Well, maybe they're creative, but it, but they're not innovative. That's exactly the point you made before. It's either. You know, even if I'll ask only if you're innovative. 85% would say, yeah, I'm innovative because they have no comparison. Here, you have to create the foundations. You have to put clear criteria of the desirable outcomes that you aim to achieve. What is it? What is the change that you need to achieve? I would say, furthermore, that if I would have the luxury of having an innovation uh, program inside an organization, I would somewhat, in your lines, try and ask not how can we incrementally efficientize and improve current processes, but also how can we break free from the mold? Where will we be in five or 10 years? And that brings us to something so unique today. Up until now, we can go to the past and show examples of how innovation materialized, etc. But we both know, in line with the Ray Kurzweil that both of us like very much, and the law of accelerating returns, and this, the change that we're all experiencing in all fields, is that what was right for yesterday might not be right for three, five years from now. So even the most rudimentary businesses need to ask themselves catalytic questions. How is my industry, my business, going to look like in the near future, medium future, et cetera. You've actually answered my next question, which is perfect, right? I was going to ask you, where do you begin, right? If you're an organization, where does one begin establishing an organizational innovation program? I think, if I understand you correctly, and I have to say I love this idea, you start by imagining your death, <laughs> yeah. right? Like sit down in a room and imagine a world three to five years from today where your company doesn't exist and try to figure out why. Go crazy, right? I mean, because in a way, it's not about really... Um, telling the future, but it's about shaking yourself out of the illusion of perpetual existence. Because today, you, you remember the book uh, Built to Last? Yeah, of course. Right? Parody, yeah. Right. 1996. Yeah, sure. right. Like these are so big. They have, they're going to laugh. How many of them exist today? How many of the Fortune 30%. 500 companies are going to exist in five to 10 years that we know of today? Of the Fortune 500 Well, in today? 10 years, 50% of the Fortune 500 companies won't be in of that Of the Fortune list. 500, right? Yeah. These are companies that are mega wealthy. Technically speaking, Google could be one of them if we really right. wanted to take it to the extreme, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I actually don't think that is the case. I think that we're reaching a point where companies are amassing critical mass of power of power, not of money. Uh, this is something that Harari talks about, which could turn them into an, you know, uh, almost a dictatorship that can't be toppled. But this is a big difference between us. You're very pessimistic towards the future, and no, very, no, no, no. And I'm, very I'm, optimistic. I'm not. I'm not. I'm a very aware of the dystopian possibilities. Sorry, of course, but pessimists are aware. Optimists are deluded. I, <laughs> I, I consider myself a techno optimist in what I dream for, but I, I do think that there are serious dangers. We won't talk about it today. I will be covering it in the in, in the next few series. We'll talk about the de you know the dangers of of uh, genetic engineering and things like CRISPR. We'll talk about data aggregation consolidation but would you say that's a good place to start and if not where should an organization start the process of exploring the creation of an innovation organization program well, I'll tell you what I'm really offended intellectually uh, by the presumption that one size fits all I think that innovation needs to go through customization for an organization, whether it's mild or extensive, it differs. But the needs of organizations, their capacity, not their desires, we all want to innovate. We all want to be well, how very do I start? rich. Is, there's not one good starting point? Yeah, there are many. First of all, start asking what you want and what kind of innovation you expect to achieve. Some would say, I would be most satisfied if we can increase our profitability by 10%. That could be done incrementally. That could be done with your own current business model, etc. There are other changes when they are saying, we need to rethink our future. For instance, we saw it with Teva, a the biggest company in Israel that knew for years that the main product, Copexon, that created most of its profits over decades, is going to run to an end. It's going to become generic. The patent warranty would end. And then they would need to reinvent themselves. And now we're seeing a company in di disarray. Maybe it would survive. Maybe it won't. But this is the kind of challenges or the questions you need to pose. 
So what are you trying to achieve? So that is unique for so Teva and its set model. Set a target, basically. Sit down and set say... Set targets. But companies set targets all the time. It doesn't make them innovative. Every year they sit down and they set a target. Yeah, but the targets they set for innovation is different. Again... So, you, so set a target for innovation. Because yeah, you said, I want to improve my profit margins by 10%. But, but again, that question won't necessarily breed innovation. It could be, we'll cut costs, we'll hire more people, we'll move into a new market. That's not innovation. No, it's not. Uh, it's always, it stems from your innovation desires. We're discussing only innovation in organizations right now. Okay, by the way, enough. there are many, many other types of innovation. I don't want to limit it right now. So when now. you said 10%, you meant how do we create innovation-driven 10% increase? For instance. Which would mean not from what we're doing already today. Exactly. And I would say that all those organizational innovation prog- programs need to disrupt, not in a step change kind of way, but disrupt the regular work. Now, I'm not sure if I agree completely with the innovators' dilemmas, assumptions from 1997, etc., which I think... Well, it's very definitely important. a recommended book. Right? Highly you recommended. Must read. You must it's a book. Read it. It's like if you're audio, yeah. it's maybe an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, it's very short. Very short. I think that anybody dealing with innovation needs to be acquainted with it and some of its assumptions. Present the premise for just for, for the listeners. I'll, I'll present some of it because I think he has a lot of premises which are very important. But what he says fundamentally in one of those points is that you cannot create innovation by working through the same workflows of the organization as it exists today. You need to create a team that can work and break the rules and work differently in its own pace. Something like the startups that are working in conjunction in an industry that could be ruled by giants. So you can move faster, you can break the rules, you can make uh, differences. But I would say that for most organizations, there is that conflict I mentioned before that you want the here and now and you want something in the future. But also, you need to ask yourself, wait a minute, if what can I actually contain at this moment? And this is something I find time and again that is misaligned. How do you decide that? You have eight people, 12 people on a management team. They'll have very different opinions about what the company can contain. Hopefully, they're diverse in their thinking, which is good for innovation, but that's going to lead to a completely different interpretation of the company's current capabilities. What, how, do you, how, do you, how do you have that conversation? Well, uh, here I must say that I would put the major issue that we many times uh, deliver, and it's probably the most important step uh, of all innovation programs, and that is the correct scoping. If I could recommend to any organization, doesn't matter where you're going, don't be stingy on the scoping. Try, check it time and again, because the most expensive process in innovation is wasting the time of the organization, the employees, on something that will not succeed. A good scoping process would identify such catalytic questions again of whether or not when the push comes to shove and you have urgent matters that cloud your judgment, would you stick with the innovation? I love another uh, example, if you'll permit me. There's a brilliant book that I would recommend people reading, even if they're not interested in conserving the world or water issues. But um, this book, uh, dealing with uh, water now... Water now? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think it's uh, it was published in uh, 2015 or something like that. And we can add the description below. Yeah. And what it, uh, it starts to check is an amazing thing. You would find that most countries in the world are going to be faced in, 2000, uh, in 2050 with critical water shortages all over the world. And there's one country, Israel, that managed to become, in a desolated, arid, desert country, Water abundant. We what over fifty percent of the water we drink today is desalinized, right? More than eighty percent in your uh, in your pipes and at home, etc. And the rest, and we have the highest rate of reuse of dark water or dirty water, the sewerage, etc., that is being repurposed for agriculture. The efficiency of the Israeli market when it comes down to uh, irrigation, to water conservation, for pipe leakages, just to give you as a small example, there are countries or cities in the world where they have 70% leakage in their pipes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And if you would see how much energy is diverted to creating, managing, pumping water, even in California, it's in staggering numbers. But the important thing here is that the Israeli water conservation, change, treatment, etc., is not something new that has to do necessarily with a startup nation alone, but it started back in the 50s when food shortages were 
actually a real thing when the country was fighting for its existence. You had security issues, and still the leaders of that country thinking ahead, sacrificing today and sticking with it, creating some of the most important projects in Israel to create that water abundance as they could. And this was step change because desalinization, massively expensive. Yeah, but wait a minute. Step change is recent, and it is a step change, and they managed to reduce it, creating five of the biggest factories in the world. One of them is the biggest uh, desalination factory in the world, and it does it for a fraction of the price of 10 years ago. But what I'm referring to is not necessarily a step change, but incremental change, thinking ahead, creating a vision, because Israel leaders understood that unless Israel had enough water to irrigate itself, it would not flourish. This was incremental? You incremental. Co- you consider Israel's water policy from the early, from the 50s to today regarding desalinization as a as an example of incremental innovation? I think that most of it was incremental, but I think that it was visionary. I, and this is what I would say, mm. and again, closing the loop again with one of your analogies of think that you would die today. And again, I wouldn't say die, but let's say... No, in three years, you're gone. What would yeah, make your you... Your business, yeah, yeah, not your bu- you as a yes, person. Yes, yes. But yeah, if your business ran out of business, so to say, what would make it happen? And how can you change that? And the interesting thing here is is creating a vision, understanding what you want to achieve and what is worthwhile sacrificing for because Israel all those years with security issues, financial issues, had so many things pulling on it and it would be so easy to give up on long-term water conservation, factories, etc. Okay, here's a question for you. What aggravates you the most when it comes to innovation? Because innovation is such a positive, energetic, optimistic buzzword. Everybody loves innovation, but what pisses you off (laughs) when it comes to innovation? Well... I think that maybe two things. First of all, I think that people are whitewashing innovation and thinking that, hey, if we do something, if we say that we dedicate a day for innovation... Look, we're innovative. We, yeah, we're innovative. We've done it. It's a check mark. Now we can move along. We've done. We're part of the revolution. And the short-sightedness and this delusion, self-delusion, aggravates me because they're coming to you and they're saying, yes, we want to promote innovation. What are you willing to commit? Oh, yeah, three hours. We'll want a lecture on it. And that brings me to the key word. I think I said it before. If you're not willing to sacrifice, you're not ready for innovation. I'm sorry. There's just no way around it. Maybe you can find a rogue example of, yeah, just fell Somebody from the sky. The jackpot, yeah, right. I didn't know I found out that if I'll twist a small piece of metal and create a paperclip, put a patent on it, and I'll become a billionaire. It, it might happen, but for organizations, you have to create a sacrifice. And the larger the sacrifice, the more important innovation is for you. And this is a litmus but test. But isn't that exactly, exactly the opposite of the whole thesis of the Lean Startup by Eric Ries, who says companies can actually lower the risk of innovation dramatically by operating in a lean way? No. So here there's a big misconception. There are means and there's an end. How do you innovate? What method are you using? Whether it's lean by Eric Rice, whether it's uh, Kaizen, whether it's 50 odd design thinking. These are means. This is an approach. As agile, yeah, you can lower the cost and you can make it more efficient and increase the probability of success. But the question would be, are you willing to take, for instance, like Google and many other companies, take off a day of work from your employees, 20%, and make them dedicated to a variety of projects or innovation. Are you willing to step behind it? I'm hearing more often than not, after we've built an innovation project, that, yeah, but our employees cannot dedicate more than a couple of hours. Okay, wait. So, you know what? So, what do you mean by sacrifice? I mean, you don't mean, look, cut 10% of your budget and put it towards some investment. Can you be clear? Because I, I feel that we may not be doing a service to companies by scaring them with this idea of sacrifice. But on the other hand, I know exactly what you mean, right? So what do you mean by sacrifice? I mean... Give me examples, real tangible examples. So you are dedicating the resources that are needed to promote and to sustain the change that you wish to achieve. Money? More than money is the time, the employee's time. Innovation, organizational innovation, unlike M&As, would require the time of your employees, which are now doing other things, sometimes productive, sometimes less. But if I'm taking away from those hours, your productivity is hurt. And that would might hurt you in the pocket or the end of the year results. So this would require you to willingly invest that time in innovation. 
but it means that you need to sacrifice some of their productivity, meetings, etc. that are being done today. Otherwise, you can go to other avenues of incorporating innovation like M&A and you will have a very small clandestine team sitting in a closed barrier floor. Yeah, that does that. Nobody knows what they're doing. They're behind closed doors. They'll make their research. Otherwise, the stock market price of the bot company would skyrocket and you don't want that. So it's a very small team and it's another way of uh, incorporating uh, innovation. So, but if you want to do it internally and there are many benefits for it, you need to sacrifice first and foremost the time and then there are other resources. So I would say, I would say again, drawing back on the innovative dilemma, I think the first thing you have to sacrifice is your comfort and your sense of certainty in best practices that may have worked for you until now. What they talk about in the, you know, in the innovative dilemma is this idea of bureaucracy killing innovation and there are standard operating procedures and there are reporting channels and there's a lot of ego and people have their different domains that, you know, and everything has to be reported to. And so I think, If we're talking about sacrifice, I would say, first of all, sacrifice what you know to work in certain areas. Let people challenge what you think works and let them try new ways of doing things. It may not even, if an employee has an idea, they want to try something, be ready to allow challenge to existing paradigms. Create a psychologically safe environment to try and err, right? Create clear boundaries of what mistakes are allowed and what are not allowed because, you know, not going to let somebody change code. In a trading software that could cost the company 470 million dollars in 45 minutes of a mistaken code right so everybody says dare to fail to fail you have to learn how to dare to fail without killing the company right so yeah um maybe sacrifice workflow of certain projects because they can't be in that meeting because they're in the innovation meeting and you can't scream at them that that's more important right so it's we're not just talking about sacrificing resources i think we're talking about sacrificing habits and comfort and the sense of we know what we're doing and of course Be ready to sacrifice some of the short-term returns of people working so that you can have something better later. Yeah, I agree with everything that you've said. I think that all of them could be viable for different organizations. And I would say the personality of the organization is vital, the customization to understand what are their needs, etc. I have met organizations in other countries, for instance, in China, where breaking hierarchy or in India is a very serious offense culturally. So you need to create the ability to err or to speak up your mind, etc. in different ways. And it could be tremendously successful, but we need to understand that. I think that um, also, if you want to understand when and what would make innovation fail in your organization, you need to give yourself an X-ray and actually ask yourself, put yourself to the test, go through with the innovation and you'll tell me when is it going to get bottled up. I can give you examples statistically that are most common in the world for why innovation fails in large organizations or in organizations at large. For instance, some of the top ones are that the development time is prolonged. So until the uh, innovation actually comes through, it's sometimes irrelevant or you've missed the mark. It took three years to develop. It's choosing the right idea. I've got, let's say it's a very prosperous uh, innovation program. You have a hundred ideas. How do you prioritize? How do you choose? How do you get over, and this is something that you've alluded to, the risk aversion that we have? How do we build the processes that would support a creative idea to come into fruition? So there are many things that come again and again and could identify failures in organizations And, and we can identify most of them. Here, even in the innovation program, our approach, I would say that we'll create, after a scoping process, I would recommend anyone create a set of assumptions, connecting back to your Eric Rice lean uh, mentality, but be ready to change and adapt them. If they're not working, what needs to be tweaked, etc. It's very hard to foresee which innovation would succeed two years down the road. Do we need to appoint an owner? Is it important that the CEOs appoint a dedicated owner or maybe give it as an additional responsibility to one of the c-suite managers to say I'm sponsoring this or you're sponsoring this I want it like report in on this every three months is it really important to have an executive sponsor for this absolutely uh, and I would say even more the higher the rank of the sponsor of this program it is a direct reflection of the seriousness and importance of the program to the organization and I would say that if it doesn't land somehow on the table of the CEO, that 
probably won't work. And I'll tell you why. Because eventually, when push comes to shove, you got a great idea. You went through, you proof tested it. And now it comes down to let's put the X amount of dollars and commit stand behind it. And then fear or less commitment or not being harnessed by the top management would knock down some of the greatest ideas. I think that both of us know very well that very well-known anecdote of Kodak, Eastman Kodak, that its, its height sure. was 70,000 people strong, one of the Fortune 500 companies. And it appeared that before their demise, they were the first ones to identify and develop the digital camera in 1975. But they didn't do anything with it. It didn't even it. come from the outside. It wasn't some outside disruption that challenged them. They had it. They had it. They already developed it. They could have put it 25 years before that. But their business was selling film and they made billions upon billions for 25 years. So were they right or wrong? Now, in hindsight, yes, they were wrong because they no longer exist. But for many decades, they continued to make billions of dollars. So. Well, we could definitely talk about this for quite a few more hours, um, but I think this is going to bring our session to a close. First of all, thank you very much. I love sure. that we got to do this. Yeah. Um, we're going to be sharing a lot of the resources on this podcast, whether it's books that we recommended, diagrams, methods, referrals to interesting articles. Um, but really, today's session, I think more than anything, was about getting you to think about what role should innovation play in your organization? Are you approaching it in the right way? Are you falling to the trap of buzzwords and popular activities that make it look like you're innovative or are you actually innovative and hopefully these questions regardless of the answers we gave you hopefully just these questions to have ponder in your mind can send you on the right track because there's quite a lot of insight out there in the market today and there are a lot of organizations to learn from um and i would say yeah. just uh, to wrap up we spoke about all the challenges the mishaps the uh, mistakes that could occur when it doesn't work but we must remember that first and foremost, it's an incredible resource for any organization, which I would highly recommend. And why? Because you already made the greatest investment already with your employees, with the system, the company, the product that you're creating. All you're, you need to do now harness is to it. harness it, to create a magnifying or concentrating lens that would take this power of thinking and channel it to create a laser beam that would break through your biggest challenges and bring you into the future. Amazing. Well, on that note, we're done with today's session. Thank you very, very much, Gul. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Greater Context with Ariel Halevi. For more shows and other great content, visit TelAvivPresents.com slash The Greater Context. See you next time.